I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Rachel Monroe, author and freelance journalist. Her new book is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. Why are so many women fascinated and obsessed by true crime stories? Using the experiences of four women, each of whose lives were touched by crime, Rachel Monroe interrogates the appeal of true crime. Each woman, she argues, represents and identifies with a particular archetype that provides an entryway into true crime. Through these four cases, she traces the history of American crime, the growth of forensic science, the evolving role of victims, the satanic panic, the rise of online detectives, and the long shadow of the Columbine shooting. She's written for The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Esquire, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Rachel. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. All right. Well, let's start out. Why? I guess my first question is, why the obsession with true crimes today, now, and of course, in particular, women? Why are we so obsessed with the with serial killers, and and all, all that's involved in all of this true crime stuff? Because I'm one of them. Yeah. Well, me too. That's why I wrote the book. Um, <laughs> that's right. I mean, I, I, in one level, on one level, this is a, a pretty consistent human preoccupation. Um, not just now and not just women, because I think as humans, we are interested in learning more about, um, I guess, extreme states or um, the, the edges of, of human experience. Um, those things are always, uh, have always been fascinating along, as long as there has been a, a mass media. But it does seem like there's something particular happening now where um, there's so many podcasts. I mean, a lot of it is, is driven by podcasts. But it's not just podcasts. It's also these. Now there are these television networks that um, air only true crime programming twenty four seven, and there are a number of those, and they get really high ratings, particularly among young women. Um, there are so many shows on on Netflix, on HBO, um, all over the place. You're seeing this fascination with these stories of of murder or of um, con men or any number of uh, of crimes. Um, well, I think I've, and, you, you, haven't you said, and I think I've read that you've, that you have talked about this, that women in particular, I'm just kind of honing in on women, that it's, that it is a way of expressing some of their own, I, I don't know if you called it like masculine traits, but you can sort of get involved in all of this stuff and some of the, the fantasies that women have are they can see them play themselves, they can see that those fantasies played out in some of these true stories. Yeah, I certainly think that's part of it. I mean, part of the reason that I wrote the book and, and split it into the four sections that I did was because the more that I looked at it, the more I realized there was a real, a real diversity of, of motivations um, that, that seemed to inspire different women. Um, some people being more drawn to that, that darkness, wanting to experience maybe that, that darkness or that violence by proxy, like you're saying, um, and, and those people tend to be really fascinated by, by stories of serial killers and their violence. But then you also have, uh, true crime is such a, a vast and, and diverse genre. So you also have people who are really motivated by, um, a strong sense of injustice. Maybe, um, maybe they've, that's something they've experienced in their own life. And, um, they, they see a, maybe a story of a person who was, uh, convicted wrongfully and they want to fight to, to correct that problem in the justice system. Um, 
Also, I think in a lot of cases, you have women who have their own experience with with trauma or maybe somebody close to them has been victimized in some way and um, they use these stories as a way to, to kind of work through that and, and um, think about it and talk about it um, and, and try to understand it better. So I think there's a real um, diversity of motivations that can I see there are lots of different reasons in, you're in saying. Crime. Yeah. But what, yeah. I, let, I, I kind of want to get back to you. I, I, I don't know if I asked the question before we got on the air, but what about you? Why your interest and why now? I mean, <laughs> well, my interest is certainly not a recent one. And that's what's been kind of funny for me personally, watching this true crime boom, as, as people are calling it, because I mean, I was into this stuff when I was like way too young, to be honest. If I think back, I think I read Helter Skelter, the book about the, the Manson family murders. I think I was 13, which in retrospect, I was like, oh, what was I doing? Um, but I, I just, I think it was this this draw to know more about the world, um, even the, the darkest sides of the world to understand. Um, and for a long time, I felt kind of embarrassed by the fact that I was interested in these, in these really creepy stories. Uh, it didn't seem like something I was supposed to maybe talk about publicly, but then um, particularly in, in recent years, um, as these communities online have, have sprung up um, around crime, interests in, in crime and crime stories, uh, it's really felt like, oh, I was certainly not the only one. This is, this is a yeah. much wider... So your interest, your interest has been validated. You're not the... You don't have to feel ashamed or guilty or whatever because the whole thing is just... Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's exploded. Uh, yeah, I used to go to the uh, little bookstore in Albany and buy all kinds of books on... I had ev- bought every book on true crime before everything was on the internet. Uh-huh. I, was, I was kind of a little afraid if something oh, yeah. happens, they're going to come blame me for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some horrible thing yeah, that happened. Yeah, all those paperbacks with the, yeah, the those paperbacks, paperbacks with like the big, big red letters. I have so many though. Yeah. So, but now, yes, as you say, it's, it's has exploded. You've talked about this, but there are like dangers to it now too, because of the connections between, uh, or among, I mean, it's a it's a global thing, and you you get people hooked up who are like a, you're talking about Columbine, um, you know, who can get really tied into these stories and and then want to 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 relive them. You know, just that's that's the scary totally. stuff. Yeah, and that's different now. Yeah. Than say, yeah. Comment on that. I think it is a fine line um, between being interested in something and fascinated by it and then, and then maybe kind of validating it or, or glorifying it. And, and that's something that, that we should probably be as a society and as people who consume these stories careful about in ourselves. Um, because you do see, I think that the end point, the natural end point of that, uh, of the glorification is maybe this, story that I write about in my book, which is about a young woman named Lindsay Suvanarath, who um, she was like an isolated uh, young one, woman, unemployed, living at home, spent most of her time online, um, had very few friends in real life. And um, I, I guess as part of her alienation, she started um, researching, looking into school shooters online. And, and she had been in first grade when Columbine happened, so she didn't necessarily uh, remember it all that well, but um, online there is a ton of information about the Columbine school shooting, and um, she got drawn into a a community that was based around um, fascination with those murders, and then 
and she met a young man who had a had similarly alienated and, and similarly interested in, in that world. And um, together they decided that they were going to plan a mass shooting of their own. I think um, it's very dark, but in some ways they felt like that was the only way to get people to pay attention to them because they saw how much attention that we as a culture had paid to the Columbine shooters. And, and they felt like, well, if I just keep living my life as I am, I'm a nobody. But if I do this act of spectacular violence, then, then everybody will want to know my name and they'll want to know everything about me. Um, and I think that's a real, that's the real danger of, uh, of a culture that, that obsesses over uh, murderers. Is, is, it is a kind of validation. Well, I guess that's one of the reasons they, or at least, you know, they blame the press for some of that, for like, you know, illuminating the shooters, uh, like in the school shootings, for instance. But now they try not to actually say their names over and over. They call them the shooter. Totally. They kind of, yeah, which I think is a good thing. But yeah, it yeah, is I scary. think we've learned a lot. So. And I assume you've learned a lot by just interviews What you know, the research you've have to you've done for the book. Um, I think another thing that you said sometimes when you talk to people about these kinds of things, they they're reluctant to talk to you. It's that that they they don't want to talk, and it takes a lot to kind of sort of call out all the the information. Um, so the research, yeah, was that yeah, is that difficult? Was that difficult for you in writing this book? Yeah, it was uh, it was it was difficult in some ways. Uh, the book tells four different, very different stories, and so the they each pose their own research problems. Um, the the first woman that I write about um, died in the '60s, and so that was that was mostly just how do you how do you reconstruct this a person's life through through research. Um, but then the people who are alive today, um, it these are these are very touchy, contentious subjects. Um, and, uh, people either like really want to talk to you and, and want to talk to you all day or, or don't want to talk to you at all, which, which can certainly be tricky, but, um, you know, particularly when talking to people who are, are victims of crimes or who, um, whose family members were, were killed or something terrible like that. I try to be really sensitive to, um, their individual needs. Um, they've been through so much and, um, they don't really owe the world their story in any way. And so I, I tend to think like anything that they're willing to tell me is, is just a real um, act of generosity on their behalf. So I just try to remember that and be grateful for, for whatever they have to tell yeah. me. So you're respectful of their feelings, their emotions, what they're going through, because sometimes they often feel, particularly on television, they're talking to just ordinary people and uh, asking them questions right. that you know, they're exposing them to the world and, and they, it's uh, sometimes even embarrassing the way the questions are asked. I wanted, Lori Davis fascinated me, the, the one, mm. the, I guess, third story. Let's, because uh, that's, I don't know how common that is. Can you just talk about that a little, maybe not with giving away the whole story, but I, I find that an interesting, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, so Lori Davis is a woman who, um, she had a she had a great job and a great life. She was working in, in New York City as a landscape architect. Uh, she's like a beautiful, really charming young woman from West Virginia. And um, she saw a documentary one day about uh, an HBO do- true crime documentary, as many of us watch all the time. Um, and it was about these terrible murders that had happened in um, 
Arkansas, in West Memphis, Arkansas. And um, she became just really drawn to one of the young men who was convicted of these murders and who had been sent to death, death row for them. Um, and uh, particularly, she felt uh, very strongly that he had been wrongfully convicted, that he was, he was innocent of these crimes. And so she started writing him letters, and, um, and it very quickly became romantic. The, the letters that they exchanged, it's, it's very like, almost like an old-fashioned romance because nobody writes these romantic letters anymore unless you know, you're in a circumstance like this where you're, you can't meet in, in real life. Um, and she eventually moved from New York City to Arkansas to be closer to him, and, and the first time they ever touched was at their prison wedding. Uh, they were like allowed to hold hands, and that was the first time they had ever touched. And so... Um, it really, this is certainly a case of a, of a crime story that changed and really kind of took over and dominated her life for, for the rest of her life. This was a Buddhist wedding, wasn't it? It was a Buddhist wedding, yeah. <laughs> I've seen pictures of it. It's very, it's very cute. Yeah, I've seen some of the pictures online. All right, so that's the story. We haven't actually told the ending, but yeah, that was a fascinating story. But that is true. I think that wasn't that something that also happened The Menendez brothers who killed their parents, who murdered their parents in their living room, that a... Well, you certainly, a, yeah, yeah. You, you hear these stories of particularly the very famous, uh, the, the crimes that get a ton of media attention. There will be these groupies, essentially. And, and I think... The one way that I was able to get Lori Davis to talk to me is, is she wants to make a clear distinction that that's not her, right? She she didn't fall in love with this man because he had committed a famous murder. She fell in love with him because he um, was the victim of a great injustice. Um, he he was on death row for a crime he didn't commit, and so so it's not it's not quite the same thing as like oh I think it's I fell in love with this bad boy and it's kind of he's sexy because he's violent, um, which is, seems to be some, some of these other women's motivations. You know, there, there was a young woman who married or was engaged to Charles Manson. I mean, you know, all of these, these famous killers have, have at least one groupie. Um, but her circumstance, I think, is, is pretty different from that. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed it out because that is very different. So some of, in that kind of a case, you're saying these women actually can... Or they hope to write a an injustice if they see somebody who's been wrongly accused, and that was her motivation, not just yeah. as you're saying get tied up with a bad boy, an extreme extreme bad boy. Um, right. You know how does this how how does this all fit into like what's happening right now? Obviously, it's horrific. We're getting you know every week there's some kind of a a, a killing, a shooting, it's a school or public place. Um, you know, from your, you know, you've been writing about this for a long time. So how does that, how can we mitigate these kinds of things from happening? This is more of a question, a political question, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my opinion, I'll give you my opinion, but um, it's just my opinion. And that's, I, I really do think that we can do a certain extent, like, as you said, to um, try not to glorify these shooters, to not, not put their names out there. Um, we can do that work around the edges to, to focus our stories on the victims and not the killers, but it really does seem like um, people who want to commit spectacular violence, what we have in this country is, is they have like pretty easy access to uh, intense weaponry um, that allows them to uh, kill 
many, many people very, very quickly. Um, and so I think personally, I, if, if you take those tools away, if you make those tools more difficult for these people to obtain, then this, this method of getting attention, um, they don't, they don't have it. Uh, the, the shooting, the, the young woman who I was talking about before who planned a mass shooting, it's interesting because she, um, she and the young man she was planning it with, they were in Canada, right? Which has very different gun laws than in the United States. Um, and, uh, the only the the young man was going to steal his father's guns. There was no way he could get a gun of his own. It's just way too hard, way too expensive, way too many roadblocks. And so they were going to try to commit this massacre essentially with like a single action shotgun and and some birdshot. And you know, it's just it it wouldn't it, it wouldn't end happen. up happening. But even yeah. if it had, it, it that's so different than. Um, somebody who has access to an automatic weapon, you know, what can happen in 15 seconds, 30 seconds um, is so vastly different. So yeah. So the outcome would be totally different, but we don't, we, I guess I keep going back to this maybe a little bit, but our whole culture in, in many ways, whether we're, you know, supplying people with machine guns or just our culture supports and, this kind of a, a a mentality, I guess. So it's not just, you know, the individual is within the culture and, um, you know, that's all part of it. I, I think you, you talk about that in a, in a couple of your interviews, but um, it's, it's a, I guess it makes it such a, I don't know, what, there's really no answer. There's no one answer anyway. It's very complex, if, you know, but um, your book does give us some yeah. insight. Yeah, it gives us a lot of insight, actually. Yeah, go ahead. And I, th- and I think it's also, um, it's interesting to, to note or to think about that even at this time when we have um, this, uh, this cultural obsession with these stories about murder and we have these spectacular news gathering headlines, the, the violent crime rate is actually about the lowest it's ever been. And, and I think people don't, um, don't always realize that sometimes these crime stories um, can distort our perception of how, how dangerous the world really is. Um, and so I think that's, that's important to remember too, um, that I think uh, if you're just sitting there steeping in, in stories of murder all day, your sense of um, what the world is like, I don't know. It, it just, it's, it's scary. It makes you feel defensive. It makes you feel on edge. It makes you feel frightened. Um, makes you feel maybe disconnected from the people around you in a way. And, and I think that's alarming. So yeah, I'm gonna. How, uh, it's important so my to, question to is, how did you feel before you wrote the book? Before you wrote, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and now afterwards. Let's get the before and after you emotionally. What did it do to you, or for you? That's a very good question. Um, I think before, hmm, I, I think in some ways it uh, it demystified writing this book demystified a lot of things. For me, I I used to. There's a particular feeling that I would have when I was when I would be, you know, watching Dateline or watching Law and Order SVU or reading an Anne Rule paperback. I would just kind of lose myself in it. It was a, it was a form of zoning out. Um, and in writing the book, I had to kind of think about okay, like why am I drawn to these stories and and not allow myself to to be tuned out in that way to use them as escapism or entertainment Just be like what's actually going on there so in some ways I did kind of um, take away some of the pleasure for myself and um, 
And, and most of the time, people sometimes ask me if when I was writing the book, did I become more, more afraid of crime? And I, and I would say no, because the more that you look at the statistics and, and research how crime actually functions in the real world, um, it's so vanishingly rare that um, somebody like me would be killed by a stranger. You know, that's just, I, I should be worried about getting struck by lightning if I'm, if I'm worried about anything. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it did get its way into my head, and, and particularly writing that last chapter about Columbine and the, and the young people who planned the mass shooting, um, just something about uh, spending all that time with um, people who felt a lot of hate uh, and who, who fantasized about directing their hate at, at just random strangers. Um, I started to feel myself getting a little bit more paranoid I tend to be pretty friendly. I'm the kind of person who in a grocery store checkout line, I'm, I'm chatting with strangers. And I noticed I was doing that less because, you, you know, I'm just sort of thinking like, I don't know who these people are. What, what if they're terrible? Who knows what they're planning? Um, and I really didn't like that. I, I really didn't like that in, in myself. Um, it, 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 I felt like in some ways I was replicating the, the isolation and the alienation that, that, had inspired these two people to turn to violence. And so I had to really make a strong effort to, to reject that mentality of, of hate and paranoia and disconnection um, and to just try to connect with people again. Yeah, I think that I, I, it would seem to me that the process that you went through, you'd have to have some of those feelings, that cynicism. I haven't written a book, yeah. but I, I still just in terms of living in this culture and everything that's happening – sort of identifying with what you're saying. I'll go to a resort. I used to talk to people or at places that I thought were innocent or even in restaurants. And now I have yeah. that feeling, well, I don't know who these people are. Maybe I shouldn't be talking to them. Maybe I shouldn't give them my name because then they can look me up on the net and they know, you know, all of those things go, mm-hmm. I can't really get them out of my mind, as you say, but I don't want to be, you know, a cynic. Uh, the other thing you just said, that the hate, I guess, do you think that was something that that was really new to you? Like all of this hate that people have that's sort of brewing underneath yeah. or, you know, that that's, that's a scary thing. And that's just risen to the top um, because it's there. It's been there. We didn't just create it. Um, so, right. I, yeah, I think that's a kind of a, to me anyway, that's, that's frightening and, and really uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah, to write yeah. that, um, to write that part of the book, I, the, the two people that I write about, they, they met online and um, their entire relationship happened over Facebook chat and it, and it was entered into evidence. So I got to read their entire, it's, you know, thousands of pages of chats and that was their entire relationship. And it, and it was just like a window into the brain of somebody who felt such hatred for the world. And, um, and I just hadn't been exposed to that. And it's so different from how I live in the world and it was really disturbing. Um, but I think another factor in that too is, um, the internet and how for Lindsay and James, these, these two young people, um, some of this, it sort of started out as a joke. And I think that's, we're seeing this with a, with a lot of, um, the online hate too. People are like, Oh, I, I don't really mean it. It's just a joke. I'm just messing around. I'm just trying to, I'm just a troll and just trying to rile people up. But it's, it's a, real fine line between when it's joking and when it becomes serious, you know? And, and I think that there's maybe a tendency to think like what happens online isn't real or it doesn't count or you shouldn't take it seriously. But I'm, I'm increasingly questioning that. 
So in other words, we really need to be aware of the impact of everything that we say online. It's not just because when you don't have that face-to-face, you don't have anybody really literally face-to-face responding to what you're saying and you can see it. (laughs) And this way, you know, it's just the, yeah, it's the printed. That's important. I mean, and I think that uh, it's easy just, yeah, I just, well, I wrote it, doesn't know, and not even realizing how many people see it. It's kind of hard to even envision Mm -hmm. that, right? I mean, that everybody has access to it. Right. Possibly forever. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to get used to. I think it is forever, isn't it? They they say once it's out there, it's out there and you never really actually get rid of it. Right. Right. Which is alarming to think about. Yeah. Whatever it is. We have about three minutes left. So um, fascinating, fascinating book. Great book, by the way. And uh, I know you've, as I, I said, you got a great review in the New York Times, and um, um, I recommend it to all my listeners. Anyway, so tell us bo- where we could, you can buy it, bookstores everywhere. Can we download the book now? I tried to do that, but I, don't, I couldn't find that. Yes, I know yeah. it is available uh, as, a, as a Kindle, and I actually don't know what other formats because I only have a Kindle. <laughs> I'm, <Okay. laughs> I'm assuming it's available everywhere. There's a great audio book. Yeah. Um, version and yeah available wherever wherever books are sold good and websites websites to not just about your book but obviously about your book we want the websites we can go to but also about you because obviously you're a writer you and a blogger um i i do i'm not so much of a blogger but i am on twitter way too much so that's my short (laughs) my attention span deficient uh version of blogging i guess that's okay. Every, I think Twitter's, um, yeah, Twitter's where it's at, right? People are turning away from Facebook and going to Twitter. So we can find you on Twitter. And yes. the, web, yeah, the website for the book is? And my website, uh, it's just all of you, my website, which is Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, dash Monroe, M-O-N-R-O-E, uh, dot com. Great. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, yeah, it was a real pleasure. It was great. great talk. And I've been talking to Rachel Monroe. Uh, her book is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 